Hey there, my name is Ryan Hughley, and I'm lead pastor of Ridgeline Church in Salt Lake City, Utah. Thanks for checking out our podcast. Our goal is to help as many people as possible meet and mature in the Jesus of the Bible. For more information about our ministry, visit our website at ridgeline.church. If you enjoy the podcast, consider subscribing on the platform of your choice. Thanks again for listening, and I pray God's Spirit uses this message to revive you in a fresh way. Good morning. Thank you. Wasn't expecting the lights to just suddenly pop on like that. Uh, Pastor Ryan's not kidding. Pray for him because he's in rural Ohio and I'm from the Midwest, so I can say it, but there's like nothing, literally nothing in rural Ohio except this group that are meeting with Jesus. So uh, thankful for that. And I am excited to be up here with all of you today. Um, So as Pastor Ryan said, we're going to jump in and continue in our series here in Philippians. So, um, of course, with the highly anticipated and welcome return to some semblance of normal and the reopening of much of the world, a lot of us have been traveling lately, which is a wonderful thing, getting to see many people, I'm sure, uh, that we have not seen in upwards of over a year, maybe, in fact. So many of us have been traveling in and out over the past few weeks. So by way of reminder, I wanted to just catch us up briefly uh, where we've been in this series through Philippians. Philippians was written by a man named Paul. Uh, It was written while he was imprisoned and written to the church at Philippi. Uh, The primary goal that Paul had in this letter was to encourage. Throughout this series, Pastor Ryan has reminded us on countless occasions that suffering is to be acknowledged. It's real, it's true, but it is not the whole story. Scriptures show us that for God's people, suffering is never final. For instance, Genesis 37 gives the account of Joseph. He was thrown into a pit by his brothers whom all wanted him dead. Yet, if you continue reading the entirety of his story, you will see that ultimately he becomes um, in a great position of great authority in Egypt. Additionally, much of the Old Testament tracks the journey of the Israelites over a 70 year period of exile and separation from God. Yet even that culminates and results in extraordinary and complete restoration. And as often as the case, Christ serves as a very prime example of this. His suffering was followed by his resurrection. Followers of Jesus share not only in his suffering, but also in his resurrection. So again, I say that suffering isn't final. What today's scripture is getting at is the in-between, what theologians call the already, but not yet. It's the period that we find ourselves in right now. It's the time between Christ's victorious resurrection and the hope and prize to come. Now, unfortunately, uh, this in-between is a time marked by suffering. But because of Jesus, we have already been given eternity and with God. And even though we patiently await that gift here in the in-between, we live in a season of anticipation. If you think about it, there are times in our lives where we rely on the anticipation of something to carry us to it. I remember about a year ago, April now, we were past the initial two-week stay-at-home order that was supposed to knock out this COVID thing that was growing in pervasiveness. Uh, Asher was home from school. I was newly pregnant, had two boys at home. Uh, And while I, of course, wasn't facing formal school expectations with my kids, I was determined uh, to not let this time get the better of me. And so I figured we would fill our time with some preschool work for Asher. And of course, that would also somewhat occupy uh, Finley. And so with my background in education, I gathered my resources. I 
was no stranger to having young kids at home, and so we set out to make these two weeks not so terrible. I was motivated by the constant hope that any day now we would be told that we could return to normalcy. But the days turned into weeks, weeks turned into months, and that resolve that once looked like cute number games at the kitchen table turned into me sitting in my car crying to a friend on the phone that I just didn't think this was ever going to end. The once bright for proverbial light at the end of the tunnel was growing dimmer and dimmer. Now, if you're like me, this walk down memory lane is all too fresh, and I'm certain that we can all draw a line from our motivated start. Some of you became bakers. Some of you organized your homes within an inch of its life, you know, as if you knew that the housing market was gonna go nuts and you could sell it for a profit a few months later. But like me, that motivated start got trampled on, worn out, and if you're honest, you might have lost sight of any finish line at all. For so long, we relied on the anticipation of the end to carry us through it. But sometimes waiting makes that so hard, so hard to hold on to that anticipation. So let me ask you, what do you do when the difficulty of right now overcomes you to the point of wanting to quit, of failing to believe that there is anything better, of forgetting that there is more than this suffering? Following Jesus doesn't promise ease or favor. Do not be fooled by the countless books, articles, podcasts, catchy social media posts that may tell you otherwise. Suffering is not a question of if, but when. So what do you do in the in-between? My husband Mike and I just celebrated our 10-year wedding anniversary, and to this day, our relationship is a pretty good example of the extremes of emotions in this. If you're like me, you might have a pull-yourself-up-by-your-bootstraps mentality when it comes to debilitating difficulty. I make lists, I search the internet, I make a plan. Or if you're more like Mike, uh, maybe the hardship of pursuit gets so draining, you find yourself figuratively and maybe literally paralyzed to do any more. You just simply get stuck. Regardless, neither of these extremes are healthy, but asking the right questions can prompt answers we need to flourish in life. So as we come to our text this morning, that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at three questions today. So if you have your Bible or an app or the verse, verses will also be on the screen. Open up to Philippians 3. We will be beginning in verse 12. I said we're going to look at three questions, and so the first one today is this. What's my prize? Let's uh, read beginning with verse 12. Not that I have already reached the goal or am already perfect, but I make every effort to hold because I have also been taken hold of by Christ. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do. Forgetting what is behind and reaching forward to what is ahead, I pursue as my goal the prize promised by God's heavenly call in Christ Jesus. So right off the bat, let me remind you kind of where we're at here and what Paul's referring to. Uh, in the passage just above, in verse 10, Paul says, I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death, so that one way or another, I will experience the resurrection from the dead. Paul wants to know Christ in the most deep and intimate of ways, which quite frankly is only partially possible this side of heaven. 
Sanctification is the fancy word that we use for this process of becoming more like Christ, a journey that we will be on until we meet Jesus. So my guess is that we can all echo Paul's status uh, currently and having not yet come to a place of such deep, intimate relationship with God. But that doesn't mean we aren't trying, that we aren't pursuing that end. Paul explicitly tells us that he lives in pursuit of this prize. Listen again to verse 13. Forgetting what is behind and reaching forward to what is ahead, I pursue as my goal the prize promised by God's heavenly call. So think about this. Paul says he is forgetting what is behind. He's not dwelling on his past decisions, his past mistakes, his past lack of enthusiasm or pursuit. He's looking ahead. He's looking ahead to the prize of complete restoration with God and depth of relationship so magnificent our minds can barely comprehend. He's looking ahead, and so should we. As we continue to see through this letter, few things inform our perspective, like where we choose to focus our attention. Let me say that again. Few things inform our perspective, like where we choose to focus our attention. Have you ever noticed that oftentimes the biggest difference between an optimist and a pessimist is simply what they choose to see? An optimist and a pessimist can look at the same circumstances and come to completely different conclusions simply based on the details that they choose to focus on. For the sake of illustration, let's say that a person loses their job. Okay, so a pessimist is going to focus only on the downsides the loss of pay resulting in financial insecurity, and the work needed to find a new job. The optimist is only going to focus on the positive. So maybe the possibility of a better job with better pay. Uh, maybe even the way that having to step out in faith causes one to stretch their trust in God. The difference is just the details they choose to focus on. The truth is they're both partially right, and they're both very guilty of only seeing one side of the story. As we've seen, Paul's forgetting what is what's behind didn't mean he pretended hardship didn't exist. Paul's forgetting what's behind didn't mean he pretended that hardship didn't exist. He just chose not to dwell on it. So ask yourself this morning, what's my prize? Am I pursuing an immediate prize resulting in temporary comfort? Or like Paul, Am I acknowledging the hardship that happens, but fixing my eyes on the prize to come? The first question is, what's my prize? Now here's the second. Where's my starting line? Let's continue now looking at verse 15. Follow along as I read. Therefore, let all of us who are mature think this way. And if you think differently about anything, God will reveal this also to you. In any case, we should live up to whatever truth we have attained. One of the beautiful things about being part of the church is that there is just a great diverse um, knowledge in our knowledge of God and our knowledge of ourselves. We're prone to obsess over having all of the information, all of the right information. Uh, but as we see here, Paul is way less anxious about that. And in fact, let's pause and give verse 15 a moment. Think about a comedian that you really love. Okay, uh, they often end their sets with a laugh so big, it's as if they drop the mic and simply walk away. Now see Paul's mic drop moment here in verse 15. 
Think about someone who's speaking, who plants a line that is so profound, so wise, it blows your mind in just a few words. It's as if that person could simply drop the mic and walk away without any further clarification or explanation, leaving everyone else speechless in the dust. That's verse 15. Paul commends the importance of thinking in a spiritually mature manner, but then he simply says, and if anything you think is wrong or spiritually immature, God will reveal that. This is a mic drop moment because we live in a culture right now where engaging in arguments and heated debate is so glorified. But do you see what Paul did here? In one line, he pulled the rug of pride out from underneath anyone looking for a fight. Paul wanted to teach them to think maturely, but he also trusted that if their thinking was wrong or immaturity, immature, God would take care of it. So think about this. What would so many of our conversations look like if we engaged knowing that if someone was wrong, it's not our job to make them right. It's not our job to make them right. That frees us to embrace others in love, trust that the Holy Spirit is the one who teaches truth. And this should also sober us because it means, because it reminds us that there are things that we may be wrong about too. But regardless, as Paul says, we should live up to whatever level of maturity we have attained. We start there. We need not tighten the bootstraps, make a nine point plan. We need not feel paralyzed. Instead, we ask, what's my prize and what's my starting line? And then this, what should I do? Look at verse 17. Join in imitating me, brothers and sisters, and pay careful attention to those who live according to the example you have in us. For I have often told you and now say again with tears that many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. A few weeks back, Pastor Ryan talked about one of the primary goals Paul is encouraging in this letter to the Philippians is that of moving from admiration to imitation. And we see that again here in verse 17. Paul said they, and by extension we, are to imitate. He's encouraging the Philippians to follow the example of not only himself, but the models they have who live as they do. Even as Christians pursuing Christ-likeness, we are, need more than one example. Paul is a great example, of course, uh, but like anything, a single example cannot typically fully display all facets and may have weaknesses or eccentricities that may not be as obvious unless they are compared to someone else. I think about this with our three boys. As their mother, I of course think I have a great number of characteristics that they should imitate as they grow and become young men. Uh, specifically things like my confidence, my bent toward prayer, my love for Disney. But then there is also plenty that I really hope that they don't inherit. Things like my high need for control in order to feel comfortable, or my dislike of chocolate and cheese. Of course, this then is why it is so wonderful that they have their father. Mike has an incredible work ethic. He is loyal to a fault and he loves to read all things. I deeply pray our boys come to imitate. But he too is not without his faults. He can have tunnel vision when he's overly stressed or this severe inability to see the item he's looking for when it is directly in front of his face. Both things, I pray, 
skip this next generation of Maury men. But the point is, uh, it's important that we think about who we look to as heroes. We need to remember we need a small army around us to serve as a whole model, a healthy example. Uh, as mentioned, I have an education background, and so I have a great appreciation uh, for Paul's tactics in these verses. Uh, it's a very important that we understand what it looks like to strive toward this goal that he speaks of, but it's also incredibly helpful for us to see what this doesn't and shouldn't look like. As we read, notice how Paul contrasts enemies of the cross with friends of the cross. Let's look at verse 19. Their end is destruction. Their God their, is their stomach. Their glory is in their shame, and they are focused on earthly things. So Paul uses four descriptors for enemies of the cross. Their end is destruction. The Bible is clear. If you have not accepted the free gift of grace, acknowledging your sin, your need for a savior, Jesus' death and resurrection on your behalf, then your end is not good, an eternity apart from him. Next, their God is their stomach, or as Urban Dictionary would, Urban Dictionary would define YOLO, this idea that I will feed myself whatever I want, when I want, without any care for consequence. Their glory is their shame. They celebrate that which they should actually pretty be ashamed of. How many times do you look at a social media post and think to yourself, oh, why would you ever show that to the world? Finally, they are focused on earthly things, things that can be here today and gone tomorrow. What these four things have in, con have in common is this. An enemy of the cross is someone who is focused on the immediate to the exclusion of the eternal. Someone who is focused on the immediate to the exclusion of the eternal. They have no consideration for the fact that eternity is coming. Now to the contrary, let's look at verses 20 and 21. Our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly wait for a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will transform the body of our humble condition into the likeness of his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject everything to himself. So notice now how Paul describes friends of the cross. Our citizenship is in heaven. We live in this world for now, but we know that we are not yet home. The angst we feel all too often, longing for something better, is the constant reminder that we don't belong here. Next, we eagerly wait for our Savior. Now pause for a moment and think about this. This sentiment sounds great, and it certainly sounds like the right thing to say, but if we're honest with ourselves, deep down, do we truly long for Jesus' return more than anything in life right now? I'm willing to admit that I went quite a long time before really understanding this sentiment and this feeling. Not until about six years ago, in fact, when we miscarried our first baby, our daughter. In the days that followed, the depth of sadness, the desire for life to be anything other than what it was right then was so paralyzing, so agonizing. I still remember acknowledging to myself that I truly longed for Jesus's return in that moment because the suffering that we were experiencing 
was far greater than anything I could imagine we could endure. Suffering has a way of increasing our eager wait for our Savior. The last thing that Paul mentions here is that as friends of the cross, we will be transformed. Now, maybe you are coming out of COVID and some of you find yourselves stepping out of the shower and thinking you've got one of those naked baby angel bodies like we see in all of the artwork depicting heaven. But let me assure you, that is just not what will be. We certainly don't have time to dig into all of this, but think of it like this. Heaven will be like earth, but perfect. Revelation 21 talks about this new heaven and new earth in more depth, but just imagine all of the lovely, wonderful things about earth and pair that with the absence of any and all hardship. Anxiety, financial need, infertility, strained relationships, just to name a few, will not be. Suffering for God's people is not final. So in summary, what we see with friends of the cross is that they are focused on the immediate in a way that invests in the eternal. They are focused on the immediate in a way that invests in the eternal. So take an honest inventory of yourself. Where do you fall? A friend or an enemy? Remember, just thinking something isn't the same as bearing fruit. What does this look like for you right now? Now, maybe the black and white nature of friend versus enemy is difficult for you, and that's okay. Filter through this. Am I living in a way that invests in eternity or ignores it? Am I living in a way that invests in eternity or ignores it? Paul brings us all to a head in chapter four, verse one. Read with me here. So then, my dearly loved and longed for brothers and sisters, my joy and crown, in this manner, stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. So here's how I would summarize our big idea. I can stand firm in the present by setting my sight on the eternal. I can stand firm in the present by setting my sight on the eternal. Paul says, so then, he's saying, here's the point. With this posture, stand firm. So when you have those moments, those days, those weeks, even years, where the light dims and you feel the paralysis of mind and body, when you don't feel like you can do anything else, Fix your eyes upon Jesus. You see, trust has a way of securing our feet when life feels anything but secure. Fight to trust that he will fulfill the prize promised to us. Paul's eyes were fixed on the goal. He calls us to fix our eyes on the goal and others around us who are on the goal. We're warned not to fix our eyes on enemies of the cross. The place you fix your eyes will determine the direction of your life. So let me ask, 
Where are your eyes this morning? Let's pray. Father God, we praise you for who you are, for your magnificent sovereignty, your ability to be far greater than anything we can imagine. But Lord, we confess that it is all too difficult, that there is suffering that is seemingly constant in our lives. We can't seem to overcome. We thank you for Jesus and that you have provided him as a way, a way for us to fix our eyes on something other than the temporary suffering of this world. And so Jesus, I pray this morning that you would help us all to fix our eyes. Would you move our focus from the suffering, from the hardship, from everything else that has taken hold of our attention and fix us upon you? Would you overwhelm us with your peace and your love and your grace in a way that we have never experienced before? That we would better be able to continue to fix our eyes upon you, knowing that you will fulfill the prize promised to us. In your name we pray.